Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. And today is part five of six marks of a church culture that deeply changes lives around a theme of passionate marriages and singleness. So again, we as leaders, one of our primary tasks is creating a healthy culture and actually embodying it. And so we're talking about six marks, and we began by talking about a slowdown spirituality. Secondly, integrity and leadership. Thirdly, beneath the surface discipleship. Fourthly, healthy community. And today, the fifth uh, mark, which is passionate marriages and singleness. So again, this comes out of an ebook, which I invite you to go to our website and pick up. It's called emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. Just go to that uh, you know, site, emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. Take a look at it. And uh, I give a few paragraphs and a little inventory on each of the topics. So today, let's go again. Let's go into passionate marriages and singleness. But before I expound on this theme, let me just read you uh, the first paragraph from the ebook on this uh, theme. In a church culture that changes lives, the maturity of each person's marriage or singleness is measured not simply by stability or commitment to Christ, but to the degree by which each is becoming a living sign and wonder of God's love for the world. So measured not simply by stability or commitment to Christ, but by the degree to which each is becoming a living sign and wonder of God's love for the world. So let me begin with a bit of my story here. uh, My first eight years of marriage, uh, I would consider unbalanced and a compartmentalized theology of marriage as it related to leadership in particular. Uh, my theology was you seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added on to you. You know, it was Jim Elliott's expand the kingdom, global missions, fulfill the great commission, life and death is hanging in the balance, double your ministry with the person you marry. Uh, and, you know, but marriage is important, but it's not central. It's kind of on the side. And, and if I seek first God's kingdom, a good marriage will naturally follow. It's a very compartmentalized spirituality. I mean, prayer, scripture, evangelism, very spiritual, building churches. Uh, but, you know, sexuality, intimacy, marriage, children, I mean, it's really important, but it's not as critical, critical. So that kind of compartmentalization uh, theologically had a lot of practical consequences. And so Jerry and I were stable for the first uh, seven, eight years, but we were unhappy uh, we didn't know it. We just were kind of used to it. And then we finally hit a wall and, uh, you know, I'll call it a, you know, really was not working anymore. We were committed and loyal, uh, stable, but uh, uh, we were stuck, very stuck. So we got some help. You know, God met us. We actually learned a skill, you know, in a good, excellent Christian therapist's office. Uh, about listening and speaking clearly. And we had an experience of, of, of seeing each other, tasted glory, tasted heaven. We didn't have much of a theology to explain it. But that really was the uh, the moment at which we call emotional and healthy discipleship was birthed. It was like a conversion. We didn't understand it, but we just knew that we we had tasted something of God. We were blind, but now we saw it was a revelation. And so we spent the last 23 years actually studying marriage and, and singleness. And 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 theologically, practically, uh, it's been really kind of our life work. And we have realized that there is a marriage spirituality and there's a, a single spirituality. And really, if you look at church history, the first 1,500 years of the church, uh, the singles were in front. 
celibates, and in marriage were in the back of the church. With the Reformation in 1517, it reversed. And then it was the marriage were in the front of the church, and the singles were second class. And so today we want to talk about, uh, theologically, both marriage and singles a bit. Uh, and I want to just up front share with my own limits. I mean, I was single from the time I became a Christian at 19 through 28, uh, when I got married, during I married, but and I was celibate during that time. And I was really very content as a single, but I've lived you know, almost 34 plus years as a married person. So I've got, obviously got a lot more history and experience of that, limited in my single spirituality. Uh, but nonetheless, I'll spend most of the time actually on a married spirituality. We'll talk about singles towards the end, but I just want to acknowledge my limits to all you single leaders out there. But in general, it could be right, it's right to say this. Married couples bear witness to the depths of Christ's love. In other words, a married couple have made vows and their focus and is on loving one person exclusively, permanently, and intimately. That's a limit. Singles, whether they're vowed singles or dedicated symbol, singles, and I'll explain the distinction later, Singles bear witness to the breath of Christ's love. And because they're not limited by a vow to one person, they have more freedom uh, and time to express the love of Jesus to a broader range of people. And the key, of course, for singles, as we'll talk about, is to be to be the kind of single God's called you to be. And we've got large numbers of people, increasingly large numbers of people in the church around the world from ages 20 to 80s uh, that are now single for Christ. But both marrieds and singles point to and reveal the love of Jesus, but they do it in different ways. So let's begin by talking about marriage, uh, being a sign of wonder in your marriage. What does it mean to be a passionate uh, married person who functions a sign and wonder to the world? Because a Christian marriage is very different than a, a secular marriage. I mean, secular marriage, you, you hope they stay together uh, the whole time, even after the spark is gone and they don't fight too much. I hope a married couple gets married and are great friends and are committed and loyal and have their needs met and are on the same page and have similar goals and values. But actually, it's secular marriage, but a Christian marriage is quite different. A Christian marriage is, is meant to be a sign and a wonder. Uh, think of the blind see, the, the, the uh, lame walk, the dead are raised. These are signs and wonders that point to something. Uh, something louder of, of the love of God, of who God is. In the same way, marriage, uh, Christian marriage is, is a sign and wonder. In fact, Paul calls it a mega sign uh, and wonder in Ephesians. Now, again, Scripture gives a very large theology for marriage. Uh, for God so loves the world that he gave his only son, and he's inviting everyone on earth to marry him. There's many analogies to our relationship with God, but the least inadequate analogy as many theologians have, have noted, is marriage, uh, that God wants to marry us. And so Jesus died and shed his blood for us, that we might be in that kind of union and communion with him. The Bible begins with a wedding, uh, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a wedding, Revelation 19 to 22. And in the middle, we've got this incredible song of songs about sexual love uh, of a man and a woman. And theologians have pointed out that that Ephesians 5.32, in some ways, is a summation of the whole Bible in that famous passage of Paul talking about husbands and wives, where he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And, and, and Paul can't talk about earthly marriage without talking about Christ's marriage to the church. 
and he calls it a profound mystery, a, literally in Greek, a mega revelation, that, that marriage points to something larger than itself. It's, it's a visible reminder of our ultimate destiny of human beings, which is to be married eternally to Christ. Uh, in other words, marriage points to the very meaning of our existence. It points to heaven. It's, a, it's an incredible revelation. It makes visible something that's invisible uh, through two human beings. It's prophetic uh, that people see are meant to see the love of a married couple that, that points to and tastes of God's love here and now. It's concrete. It's meant to be visible, the love of God. It's a walking, tick, t talking picture of how God loves us. We image God in our maleness and femaleness. And it, again, it's prophetic. Think of uh, a trailer of a movie. You know, you watch a trailer, and it's meant to be a taste that we want to watch the whole movie. Think of Amazon gives us a, chap a free chapter on their website of a book, and they want us to read the whole thing. In the same way, marriage is prophetic in that we, we see an earthly marriage, which is just a taste. It's like a chapter. It's like a trailer of the real thing, which is being married to, to Jesus uh, eternally. And that's why marriage, Christian marriage, isn't private for two people just to, quote, find happiness. It's not just for us. It's for the world. And we go out two by two as married couples, and the church needs us to be that prophetic sign to itself. So we get married not just in the church, but we get married for the church, and we get married for the world. And But, but to get there, we, we've got to have—what that means is if you're a Christian, you're married, especially now as leaders, our first ambition is to be married, to have a, a marriage that's a sign and a wonder. Uh, now, we've got lots of ambitions as leaders. We've got ambitions to build a, a large ministry or church or get another degree or build our platform or make a big impact for Christ or do something significant. And we're encouraged to dream big at all the conferences. But uh, as Christians who are married, our first ambition, of course, is God, you know, seeking his face, gazing on his glory. But if we're married, our first ambition is our spouse. And it's not that I'm a Christian and I'm married. No, as a Christian, I lead out of my marriage. Uh and there's a, there's a connection of John 17 and uh, John 15 about we abide in Jesus, we abide in our spouse. And our first ambition is to be one flesh with our spouse. And this is when Jesus prays, Father, just as you're in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so the world may know that you've sent me. And in other words, that, that we are in, as in love with our spouse is crazy about each other such couples were the clearest and most credible you know, picture or taste of the ecstatic intimacy of uh, the persons of the Trinity uh, with each other. And we make a vow to that uh, end. And the only thing I can compare a, a marriage vow to is, the, is a monastic vow. Uh, when, a, when a single person goes through six, seven years of, of a process and finally comes to a place and makes that vow, uh, they forsake all else, uh, and they vow stability and conversion of life and poverty and uh, to live in that community for the rest of their lives, and, and they even change their name. Well, every decision they make at that point is informed by that vow. So in the same way, marriage is a vow before God, and uh, it impacts every decision we make from that point forward how, of how we're going to follow Jesus.
our pace, our commitments, our discernment, our decisions, and the limits of our spouse, that's inform our limits uh, and affect and impact how we then follow Christ. And, and if you've made that marriage vow and you're listening to this, that the greatest gift you can give the world and to your children is, is, that, is a cup that overflows. Uh, and that's why a married spirituality is different uh, than a single spirituality. And so my, my, my first ambition is to convince my wife that she's loved and lovable. I want to be God in skin for her. Uh, I want to be an expert in her. And, and uh, so it, it's, a, it's as simple as making what's important to her important to me. And in my case, it's not being distracted. I got a PhD in distraction, whether it's thinking uh, of ideas or, or reading, uh, to get out of that and be attentive and think about her and be present to her. What would make a great day for you, to Jerry, today? And uh, you know, stopping work and putting limits around work's always been a large issue for me. Uh, and then taking some action steps to actually do it. And this is my my life work as a Christ follower. Uh, you know, what does Jerry need? God sent me to do it for her. And so in some ways, I'm marrying her every day. I'm saying my wedding vows every day. I center my life on her. And I'm abiding in Jesus. That's, that's, that's my life is abiding in him, John 15. Uh, and my life is abiding in Jerry, in loving union with her as well. So we might live as one flesh. And that's got to be nurtured. It doesn't just happen naturally. Because in our marriage, we're giving birth to something, something that's never existed before. Uh, it's interesting because we had uh, dinner with the uh, four couples uh, from our church recently. And, and uh, it was just really interesting. And Jerry noted it afterwards that each of the couples, uh, and these are folks married, uh, you know, between 10 and 35 years, uh, touched, you know, at the table. And we just noted their touching of each other and their uh, just the, and even sharing together how just remarks were made about making love and, and sexuality in a very beautiful, healthy way. And we said, isn't it amazing how different that conversation was because we are, we have been uh, you know, absorbed in a culture, and again, it's, the, it's a culture we've intentionally created, uh, you know, at New Life uh, on marriage. And, and so we talk often about creating a, a, a safe, secure couple bubble around the oneness of our marriage. Uh, it's a fragile ecosystem, and it, it's, a, it's a cocoon, it's, it's a womb, and that there's no intruders, there's no third parties that get in there. Uh, you know, in uh, many workplaces and careers demand that you're married to the company. Well, you know, sometimes churches demand that we be married to them. Uh, but anything can break into that couple bubble and in-laws, children, parents, hobbies, addictions, you know, pornography, going to other people with secrets. And again, in my case, it's very simple. What gets into the couple bubble of our marriage you know, has been ministry and leadership, which I love and enjoy. Uh, writing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing, I'm consistently writing, and I, I can get absorbed uh, in it and and just forget, and it breaks into our couple bubble. And so part of being a married couple that's passionate and a sign and wonder is we protect each other in private and in public. And uh, and actually, children need us to have that. They have, a, they have a biological need for parents to be in love. It's the building block of society. It's a building block of the church. And so my first ambition as a follower of Jesus and in a healthy culture is not, you know, going up a ladder. It's, it's, it's 
as a follower of Jesus, Jesus, and then it's nurturing first if I'm married, my marriage. Uh, and, and thus, as a married couple, we actually create, uh, if we nurture married couples in our churches, we're nurturing the atmosphere. We're creating an atmosphere. Uh, we're setting a level of the depth of Christ's love in the church as a whole for singles who are of all ages, as well as, of course, young adults, uh, youth, and, and children. Uh, we actually set, in some ways, the level of the love in, in the church. And our culture says, put everything else before the love, of, uh, before your love as a married couple, career, family, money, kids. But it's for all that. It's for the kids we put the marriage first. It's for the church I put the marriage first. It's for the world I put the marriage first. And uh, our love actually manifests something of the love of God that's so unique. And love, remember, the love of God... Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had to overflow into the creation of the world and humanity. In the same way, true love always overflows. It's never self-absorbing. It goes outward. Uh, and we want to be an army of couples that's a living sign of God's passionate love for the world. And I, I firmly believe that the best gift that I give the world, uh, and Jerry and I give the world, is us, our, our marriage. Uh, we give it to a church and the world. And when we go and speak or do anything, we're very aware that we're we're giving out of the overflow of our marriage. And uh, so we invest in our marriage uh, very intentionally. Uh, each year we do something to invest in our marriage. We're going to, we're going to a, uh, a retreat in two weeks uh, for the weekend. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're attending. And uh, something new, something different we've not been exposed to, we want to go and we'll just go as nice uh, attendees uh, and receive for a weekend away. But a, a second way that you create a passionate marriage is, is is a you actually you invest in passion. You know, we always expect young couples to be passionate right before they get married. But the expectation is you're kind of like, well, that wears off, the spark is over, and then you're kind of just going along for the ride. And remember, our love for each other in marriage is to reflect the love of God for us. Well, God, and so we we have a big emphasis on loyalty, in especially in evangelicalism, loyalty, become committed. And, and uh, that's kind of our badge of honor. Even though things are rough and bad and difficult, we're going to make it through the whole 30, 40, 50 years, whatever. Uh, and God's love is loyal. That is the way God loves us. That is true. But we forget that God's love is also passionate. Uh, he's crazy about us. And I think one of the greatest pictures of that is, is beyond after the cross. I mean, obviously, God's love for us demonstrated on the cross. But again, we like that because it's some suffering in marriage. But there's a passionate, delightful love uh, that God has for us. And we see that really clearly in Luke 15, when the prodigal son returns home, the father is passionate. He's crazy about that son. He runs to him. You know, he kills a fatted calf and he puts the robe on him and the, and the sandals and he kills the fatted calf. And there's a huge feast. And he's, the, the son is irresistibly attractive to him. And, and he sees the son's goodness and, uh, and it's passionate. Uh, falling in love is a conversion experience. Uh, if you, if you, it, it makes us more like God. And that's why when you're around engaged couples, for the most part, when they're in love, it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, and uh, you bring out the best in each other. You don't even see each other's flaws. You can't get them out of your head. You're patient. You're willing to forgive. You're you know, less materialistic, you know, and uh, you're just different and and you, you forgive. And Jerry likes telling the story. It's a great one that, you know, when, when you're engaged and you're in love and, you're, and your partner is late and they're for, for, you know, meeting you for lunch, and you're like, oh my gosh, I hope they're okay. I hope they didn't get hurt in an accident. But after being married five, 10 years, if they're late, and you're like, I want to kill them. And you just, you know, you hold different attitude. 
And so we don't fall in love. God doesn't set it up that because God set up that that and John Paul II talked about talked about this in his theology of the body, this perennial attraction of male and female who are drawn to each other to fall in love. And uh, we weren't just meant to fall in love and then you get married, then you kind of okay, then you fall out of love and you're you're done now for the rest of your life. No, we're meant to fall in love and and not become roommates but to remain in passion for our whole marriages. And that to do that, we, we create conditions for it to live in love. And great mentors of ours talked about, we want to live in love with each other. And uh, so, you know, this is my body given for you. And so this issue of passion is something that we take steps for uh, and create conditions for. Let me just say this, married sexuality uh, is is so far and above, if cultivated and worked on over decades, uh, is so much better and greater and more beautiful than any other sexuality the world could ever know. And we are actually meant to be prophetic and offer that to the world. Uh, there's, a, there's a magnificent power uh, and delight found in a marital sexuality in Jesus. Again, it's not. I'm not just throwing this out here to you to, to like, frustrate you, but it is something we grow into. It's a discipleship issue. And uh, so a healthy culture, there is a a, 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 a prophetic marriage that we want to create that, you know, romance is not an illusion, actually. It's actually a revelation. And uh, we want to make this, for us as leaders, a priority to grow and continually learn to how do we have that kind of marriage after three, five, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years together? And uh, that is God's will. But let me make a few comments about a single sexuality, single spirituality uh, here as well. I, I've obviously, obviously, we could go on. I could easily go on about marriage sexuality. But single sexuality, the, the key is to be intentional about the kind of single God's called you to be. Now, again, there's large numbers of singles with a wide range of circumstances. Uh, from people divorced who've never married, folks in their, again, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way through 80s and 90s. And biblically, there's two categories of, of singles. There are vocational celibates, uh, and then there are dedicated celibates. And, you know, Jesus and Paul, for example, were, were celibates. And uh, that was very radical in first century Judaism. And Jesus made allowance for, uh, and actually, this category of vowed celibates. And he in Matthew 19, he talks about not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it's been given. Uh, he refers to some are eunuchs because they're made, born that way. Others are made that way by men. But others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept it should accept it. And again, it's interesting because in the first century Judaism, there was, there was no uh, real place for single people. There was no Hebrew word for bachelor. To be unmarried at the, at the age of 20 for some rabbis was considered a sin, and the idea of the extermination of the family name was a disaster. And yet Jesus introduces in the kingdom this, this category of vowed celibates. In fact, he, he mentions in Matthew 22, at the resurrection, there will not be any marriage. Uh, we won't be given in marriage because we'll all be married to Jesus. Uh, but Jesus opens up this entirely new category of those who've renounced marriage for the kingdom of heaven. It's the very definition of a vowed celibate. And it's, it's a charism. It's a grace. It's a divine enablement God gives to certain men and certain women uh, to skip the sign of marriage and to be a special gift of service to the world. That they forego the temporal, temporary sign 
in a sense, they jump right to the heavenly reality to which marriage points, eternal marriage to Jesus. And Jesus makes very clear, very few men and women are granted this charism or grace. And, uh, you know, I've known a number of people, we've known a number of people over the years with that grace. They're more often found in Roman Catholic uh, monastic orders or Orthodox monastic order, but there are some Protestants as well that are, uh, are have made vows of vocation, vocational celibacy, and uh, it, they're, they're, and I firmly believe that there are those few scattered around Protestant evangelical churches in the world, but we've not made any category biblically for them. Again, it's more of a reaction of the Reformation, and that's a whole other long story where we shut down that vocation uh, and haven't really paid attention to those particular scriptures where Jesus talks about it. Um, and, uh, but then there's also dedicated celibates. And these, who, these, these are folks who actually are single in Christ, but choose to practice celibacy as long as they remain unmarried. And that's part of their commitment to Christ. Now they could, um, you know, some Christian singles, as you all know, uh, are quite sexually active. Um, but dedicated celibacy would be the single spirituality for those who would like to be married at some point. And, and, and of course, tremendous challenges in our culture, to re, it, it, tremendous challenges to remain as a dedicated celibate. Uh, but how do I do that? And uh, I've just got three little, you know, things here, a few things to consider. And again, it's not my expertise, but uh, I've written about it a bit in that and lead out of your marriage. But, but part of it is, is also a healthy singleness then becomes, for example, your first ambition. How, how do I live out healthy singleness, you know, for Christ? Uh and that involves things such as devoting yourself to, to excellent self-care. What do I need to do that? Uh, it's investing in community, cultivating a, some companions for the journey long term. Uh, but with a real sense that my vocation as a dedicated celibate at this season of my life points beyond itself to something more important, which is, again, Jesus' love for the church. And I'm married to him. We're all married to Jesus first. But a healthy singleness, like a healthy married person, we've got to restructure our lives around and our priorities so that we're living out of a healthy single. Do you remember our first calling is, of course, to Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus. Uh, but we all have secondary callings as marrieds or singles in which we're living out uh, our marriage to Christ. And so that involves in our to-do list as single people, for example, yes, I'm spending time with Jesus on a daily basis, weekly basis, and I'm investing in my few close friends and community. I'm listing times and actions I'm going to spend with them. I'm practicing delight in my life, you know, in art and music and hiking and reading clubs. And 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 then there's all else I need to do as a, as a, as a leader, preparation of messages and, you know, staff meetings and board meeting prep, etc. And, and, you know, one resource we recommend often, you know, in our church that that's helps singles is, is called How to Avoid Marrying a Jerk. It comes out of John Van Epps work, a website, lovethinks.com, and, and that I just don't meet someone as a single person and, and go to bed with them and, and touch them. But there's a, there's a, there's a God's progression of uh, order. I get to know a person, then I slowly trust them, then I slowly rely on them, then slowly commit to them, and then there's touch, finally. The culture has it the reverse. I meet someone, uh, meet and they, and they immediately touch because they, they're not sure, they don't know how to bond. And one of the great challenges for singles today in our culture and, and single leaders as well is 
is bonding. We were created for bonding, and I'll define bonding as emotional closeness and appropriate physical touch. Every human being needs that. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1. God creates Adam, but uh, it's not good for him to be alone. We, we were created for relationship. We all need bonding relationships. And so as single people, uh, we've got to grow. And how do I emotionally connect to people? Uh, and how do I have appropriate touch? And that is part of the task of discipleship. How do I move from being defensive, closed, reactive, uh, et cetera, to a person who's open, warm, not easily triggered, uh, you know, delighting in relationships? And so it, this, this, this issue of single spirituality also has become a, a large one for us over the last couple of decades. And that's why we created what we call the Emotionally Healthy Relationship Course that has eight skills in it, because we've realized part of discipleship is teaching people, again, married or singles, how to bond appropriately, how to have relationships. It's a critical issue of discipleship. So if you've not seen the Emotionally Healthy Relationships Course and the eight skills that we developed over these two decades, uh, you want if you want, to, you want to get that as a DVD workbook and a... Um, you know, daily office book and go to emotionallyhealthy.org, come to a training about how do you use this? It's part of the discipleship course that we are very committed to bringing to churches when I, that, that are interested because it is a missing piece of discipleship, both for singles and marriage. And for us, at least in the culture we're seeking to create, we see these, these skills of how do I bond in a healthy way? How do I move from brokenness to wholeness in relationships as just basic foundational to a married, healthy married or healthy spiritual single, a healthy married or single spirituality. So let me close with two questions to ask you today. In what ways does the culture, your culture that you're building, affirm marriage and singleness as vocations, as two ways of modeling God's passionate love for the world? And what, if any, differences are there in the equipping in your culture that you're offering to marriage as well as to singles? And the second question to consider is, overall, how would you describe your role, uh, your vocation as a married person or single person? What does that play in your leadership? And to what degree does the way you spend your time and energy reflect that your marriage and your singleness, not your ministry, is your first priority? So I offer this to you. Go with us and you get a chance at a website, emotionallyhealthy.org. Look at some of the resources there, especially the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. And uh, may God bless you and grow you into a leader that models a marriage or a singleness as a sign and wonder that points and tastes of Jesus. God bless you, everybody. Have a wonderful day.